This is Mythogenist, where I host long-form conversations with the most interesting women you've never heard of. In this particular case, I speak of the woman you may have heard of. Likely you've read or listened to her reporting and not even known it. Dia Hadid works as an international correspondent for NPR in Islamabad, Pakistan. Previously, she worked for the Associated Press from 2006 to 2015 and the New York Times from 2015 to 2017. Prior to working with NPR, she reported on the Middle East for over a decade. She now lives in Islamabad with her husband and daughter. In 2019, Dia and her team won the Murrow Award, a journalism award, for her piece on why and how Pakistan has the highest rate of abortion in the world. This conversation spans her upbringing in Australia, born to a Lebanese father and Egyptian mother, the pursuit of career and life outside her Muslim family, the transformation of identity, the logistics of journalism in Pakistan, peculiar details around the story on Pakistan and abortion as it pertains to women's rights and culture, the details around another story on Israel's youngest prisoner, a 12-year-old Palestinian girl who got her first period while being interrogated, and other fascinating journalistic investigations that tell much bigger stories about women in the world. It is because of Dia's tenacious curiosity that such important and fascinating stories are shared with the West. Because the range of topics are so impressive, I will list some of them below. Dia has documented the collapse of Gaddafi's rule in Libya from the capital Tripoli. From Beirut, she was the first to report on widespread malnutrition and starvation inside a besieged rebel district near Damascus. She unraveled the mysterious murder of a militant commander, discovering that it was killed for being gay. In Syria, she met the last great storyteller of Damascus, whose own trajectory of loss reflected that of his country. In Libya, she profiled a synagogue that was once the beating heart of Tripoli's Jewish community. In Lebanon, she chronicled how poverty was pushing Syrian refugee women into survival sex. In Baghdad, she met women who risked their lives to visit beauty salons in a quiet rebellion against extremism and war. In Cairo, she wrote of revolutionary upheaval sweeping Egypt. She covered the violence of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. We are so lucky to hear these stories directly from Dia, as well as about her history, the history that's not shared in public bios. This conversation is an honor and a pleasure. Enjoy. Hi, Dia. Welcome to Mythogenist. Hey there, Mary. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, really, I'm really looking forward to this chat. Wonderful. What have you been up to for the last few weeks? How have you been spending your time? Um, it's, it's, it's been a bit weird uh, because this pandemic means that I can't do much field reporting. So I've just been doing a lot of phone reporting lately. And it's a lot like I used to cover Syria in um, 2013 from Beirut. And it feels a lot like that, except it's this really normal scene outside, you know, I live in an upscale neighborhood in Islamabad and, and things look normal, except, you know, this, there's this invisible danger that might affect me or my family. And so we have to stay indoors. It's, it's quite surreal. I haven't done reporting like this in years. Is it harder to get the information you need and to actually communicate with people? It's harder to get information if you're not face-to-face. It's also that you lack texture. So much of of what we do as journalists is to to see people and to follow their cues. 
And that's a lot harder to do over the phone. And I'm also missing context. Like I've been interviewing doctors this week about what it's like to be in hospitals, but I can't hear the hospital. I can't see the patients. I can't feel the light. I, I can't get any sense of the time or the place. I'm just listening to people speaking and it's almost like these like disembodied voices just like floating through. It's quite frustrating and sad, but it's the best that we can do right now. Right. Any reporting is helpful. Any information is helpful. But that's that's a really solid point. A lot of times when you interview, you ask questions, but that's only part of the story. It's being filled in by all these other other details that you mentioned that won't come across or people either won't be upfront about, won't be honest about, or don't know how to explain themselves. Yeah, exactly. And it's also that, you know, when you see people in their own environments, you understand a lot more about what they're saying. You see this three-dimensional picture, or at least as three-dimensional as possible. Over the phone, you're just getting this little wisp of information. So that's that's really what it's been like in the past few weeks. And beyond that, I've gone on furlough for a week which was wonderful because I don't see my daughter as often as I would like to, but it's also terrifying because I don't know what our future looks like anymore. And like there's hundreds of millions of people already like lost their incomes, lost their livelihoods, lost their jobs. I'm not alone. And yet personally, it, it's, it's also quite terrifying. Certainly. And what is the effect of the coronavirus in Islamabad? What, what is the local response where you are? The Pakistani federal government lifted its lockdown that lasted for several weeks. They lifted their weeks-long lockdown at the end of May. And since then, the country has been more or less open. There's bans on like large congregations, large gatherings, schools are still out. But in many ways, the country has returned to normal. And that has Caught, that's caused a surge in cases of the coronavirus in the country. And now hospitals, doctors in hospitals say that they're full or they're overwhelmed. They're worried about the collapse of the health system. There's going to be some intermittent lockdowns uh, in the next few days. But this isn't a country that's emerged from, from the pandemic by any means. Like our cases are still climbing and they'll probably be climbing till August or September. Maybe we'll be out of it by the by January. The reason why the government won't impose broad-based lockdowns is because this is a poor country. Most many people live below poverty line that is unbelievably low. They can't afford to stay home. They they can't afford to not work. So, and, and that's just to partly justify where the government thinks where it does. Also, our death rates appear to be quite low because this is a young country. And so we don't have tens of thousands of elderly people who are at risk in the same way that you might have in the Western world. For all that said, it also feels terrifying to be here because this is a country where officials have decided that the coronavirus should become, is going to become endemic and it's just going to be another risk uh, that that we face in our day-to-day lives. What do you think that means for journalism, at least where you are? I mean, I know how it's affected you. You mentioned how it's affected you in the immediate future, but what do you think long-term? Well, long-term, hopefully there'll be a vaccine and we can just vaccinate against it and then we'll be okay. I, It's really just a point of how do we get through to that time when a vaccine 
exists and becomes widely available for developing countries like Pakistan. I was chatting, I was filling out, in fact, a survey for a friend of mine about this very topic. For local journalists, it's been really hard. They're still in the field. They don't have the necessary PPPs. And they're one of the groups that has been quite affected by the pandemic. Whereas I have had to be really cautious, not so much because I worry about my own ability to survive the coronavirus. I think I'd survive it pretty well. But because I have a husband who often falls sick quite easily and I work in a large house that has a lot of staff and some of them are over 60 and I can't risk bringing this back to them, especially because they're poor and they can't get the access to good quality health care that I could get. Right. There seem to be two main points when it comes to concern for spread, and that is oneself and their immediate environment, but also just being someone who transfers it to other people, other vulnerable communities. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's something that's sort of been frustrating for uh, me and my partner, because we certainly have friends who've taken this less seriously than we have. And I think this is a universal issue through this pandemic, is that we all have these different levels of what we think of as safe And uh, we all sort of shackle together our own rules. But one of the things that's sort of been frustrating for me is this really insular sense of, well, I'll be fine, so I don't have to take all these safety measures. And it's like, well, it's not about you. It's about all the people who work for you and surround you who are poor and who don't have your access to health care. And I'd say this is definitely a problem more in the developing world where there's such inequality, such enormous gaps between rich and poor. And so if you're in that 1%, which I pretty much figure I am in Pakistan, the very least you can do is stay safe for other people. Absolutely. That's a very community-minded way to think about it. And how long have you been in Islamabad? I've been here for about three years. Um, I I do want to say that like my day-to-day practice of living through a pandemic falls short of my own ideal, but that's what I aim for. So I've been here for about three years. I had some time out for maternity leave, but yeah, more or less since the middle of 2017. And what does your life look like there now? I mean, pre-coronavirus, what was work looking like and I mean, you mentioned you have a husband and a daughter. I'm sure that that's a huge part of it. What What is daily life for you? Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, this is the most pedestrian I've ever been. Um, I live, honestly, I live in a in a big house in a suburb. Uh, I have, you know, my, my daughter and my partner. The, we have a full-time nanny. You know, we have cleaning stuff. I've never lived so well in my life. And typically, before the pandemic, I'd spend a week doing field reporting for like a fairly big story and then I'd spend the next week scripting it for radio and then writing up the digital version you know and 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 on repeat and and one of the frustrating things about the timing of this pandemic purely for me I mean <laughs> you know <laughs> the way that this pandemic has inconvenienced me is that um uh I um you know I had just started going to Kabul a lot more because When I first came here, I was sort of finding my feet in Pakistan, so I didn't go to Kabul for a while. Um, And then I got pregnant, so I didn't go because I just couldn't guarantee the the, the safety of my fetus. And then I had my daughter and I had maternity leave. And then for the first, you know, month or two when we were back, she was still too small for me to go anywhere. And 
Yeah, it was it was around you know the end of last year in January and February that I finally began to make trips to Kabul and figure out what this whole other country is like. And now I'm grounded back in Islamabad, so I should be making more Afghanistan trips, and I'm not. So a lot of my life pre-pandemic was was focused on Pakistan. So I'd be going to Lahore, which is the country's second largest city. I'd be going to Karachi, the country's largest city, or or going to sort of like rural areas, largely in the Punjab, which is the most populous province. It's got a population the size of Spain and France combined. And how is navigating the country? Has that always been comfortable for you? Um, it's it's a bit weird. So I came from reporting in the Middle East and I speak um, Arabic pretty fluently. I'm not bad at Hebrew. I used to be okay at Hebrew. Um, and then I came to Pakistan where I only speak English. And I mean, English is widely spoken here, but I don't speak Urdu. I don't speak Pashto. I don't speak Punjabi. I don't speak Sindhi. I don't speak Dari. And so I'm locked out of people's most genuine and authentic experiences because I'm not catching it in their own language. So yes, it's comfortable, like it's largely comfortable to work here as a journalist, but I feel that I'm working in two dimensions instead of three because I always have to rely on a translator to really understand what people are telling me. And that's so different from my Middle East experience where I did work with other people. I always needed someone to help me open doors and get around culturally, but I never had an issue understanding people. Whereas here I do. And so it's this really big sort of ditch that I fall into as a journalist here. And like, I'm trying to start Urdu lessons again, but that will only give me, even that one language will only give me a certain slice of the population. Beyond that, it is fairly easy to work in Pakistan once the authorities let you in, and that's its own sort of palaver because authorities here are deeply suspicious towards uh, Western journalists. But Pakistanis in general are really sweet. They're really friendly. They're really welcoming. Even people you'd think of as like people who are like really conservative and, and not so welcoming towards women and, and have some pretty dour views of the world even they're pretty welcoming and kind. And so it makes reporting in Pakistan to be often quite a joy just because people are so sweet. That said, sometimes the sexual harassment is insane or just not even the sexual harassment, just it's rare to be a woman working in the field. Like there are Pakistani female girls. They do work in the field. There's just not many of them and, and there's not many of us. And so I've definitely been in places where like men have literally just surrounded me in a circle and stared at me um, while I work and it can be super claustrophobic. It happened to me once when I was pregnant and I was still feeling really vulnerable about this, this thing that I was carrying. And I remember just freaking out and shouting at these men to just move back because I didn't feel safe. I've been at politi- I've been at a political rally where uh, men just try to like feel me out the whole time, but that's pretty unusual. It's, uh, largely, Pakistan is an easy place to cover with the myriad restrictions that we have placed on us from being able to get into the country in the first place. And then there's like so many parts of the country that are basically just closed off to journalists. 
What's it like trying to get into the country when trying to get clearance as a journalist to begin with? I mean, granted, you've been reporting in the Middle East for over a decade, so and you have quite a robust background as a journalist. It's not like your first story you try to attempt to get into the country, but what what was that like for a professional journalist? Oh, it was just in, in, immensely frustrating because you fill out the same form multiple times. It constantly gets lost. You have to appeal to embassies and the ambassador normally. You sit down for meetings. You assure people of your intentions. And then you wait and you can wait for weeks. And then, you know, when you first come to the country, you'll just be lucky to get a three-month visa, just a visit visa, a single entry visit visa after all that effort. And by that point, you probably spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. And then you have to do sort of like the whole application again from Pakistan. And then every year you do it again. And like, there's always like this two month gap in the country where I don't have a visa and I don't know what to do except just hold tight and wait for them to come around to issuing me one. It is a concern. Sure, sure. And where did you live prior to Islamabad? Prior to Islamabad, um, so, oh gosh, I've moved around so much. But prior to Islamabad, the last place I lived for a long time <laughs> uh, was East Jerusalem. And before that, it was Ramallah. And before that, it was Beirut. And before that, it was West Jerusalem. Um, I Before Islamabad, I hopped around uh, different Middle Eastern cities a lot uh, largely from 2014 to 2017, I was in Israel-Palestine for the New York Times. And, and before that, for eight years, I was with the Associated Press um, as a Middle East correspondent. So I was also hopping around a lot. I would imagine. And so you grew up in Australia, is that right? Yeah, I was born in Egypt. Uh, my mother is an Egyptian Alexandrian. But she had actually migrated to Australia after uh, she had married a Lebanese man, uh, my father, and um, they, they, they met and they married and they moved to Australia. She came back to Egypt uh, when she was pregnant with me and she had me in Alexandria. And when I was a few months old, uh, we went, she, she took me back to Australia. She wanted a kid that was born in Alex and I was the one. Mm-hmm. And just a little bit more about your upbringing. So you went to university in Australia. And what did you study there? And did you know that journalism was uh, an interest of yours at that time? Right. So to explain a bit about my upbringing, my, my mother's from is from a family that used to be extremely rich uh, and extremely urban uh, in Alexandria. They were part of the, the 1% and part of an extremely elite slice of that 1%. My father is uh, from a village in northern Lebanon. He was from an he is from an extremely poor family. Now they're middle class, but when he was growing up, there there was hunger, and his parents were illiterate. He was the first generation of his family to get an education and to go on to university. The the fact that my parents met and married is a bit unusual, uh, just because both societies are quite classist, and people don't really marry outside of their class. And my parents achieved this really remarkable double. They they hit two highs. They um they married outside of their own country. My father's Lebanese, my mother's Egyptian, and they married into different classes. My mother being like from this really rich family, my father being from this extremely poor family. I I say this because um. You know, then uh, they met in Alexandria, they migrated to Australia, and then we were raised in a fairly working class neighbourhood on in, in what used to be a fairly, fairly working class neighbourhood in Canberra, the capital of Australia. 
And I explain all this because we regularly lived between three cultures as children. And we had to constantly reimagine and reinterpret who we were in those cultures. I don't know many kids who would practice their like different ethnic words going from a plane from Beirut to Cairo, um, you know, like me and my brother did, just having to remember all the new words that we would need in Egypt that, that didn't work um, in Lebanon and vice versa. Um, and so I, I, we grew up as like literally as like these three like three culture kids in in Canberra. My father was a postman there. My mother uh, was a homemaker, and the the truth is I I didn't know what I wanted to be at all. From a very young age, I was entranced with National Geographic, and I would read every copy my father would buy for me. He knew I loved to read, so he'd go to the garage sales and just buy things by the box, like. Just he wouldn't look at the contents very much. He'd just buy me boxes of books and magazines, and so I read everything growing up. And I, you know, like cheap seventies novels about prisoners and like Caribbean islands. And I read uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez before I really even understood that magical realism wasn't real. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I really was surprised. Like it just didn't occur to me in my childhood brain that oh, like it that that isn't real. Um, and I read a lot of National Geographic, and I used to wish, even as a tiny kid, that I was somewhere else. Um, I found suburbia. It just it didn't feel right. Like I just kept thinking, well, what's after this? And you know, when you drive through suburbia, especially around Australia, which is this extremely suburban country, everything looks the same. And even as a kid, I'd get depressed. So it's just like, you know, I'd be reading books about and there'd be forests and lakes and kids playing in summer houses. And and none of that was really available to us the way that I imagined through reading these books and these magazines. But for all that, I didn't know what I wanted to be growing up. And in fact, I was like a really lame student. I didn't do very well. My teachers thought I was fairly stupid and dull and I didn't ever get good marks. I, I never got... I only ever got A's in high school in art. I was really good at art. And um, and I thought, well, maybe I'll be an artist growing up because it was the only thing that I could really do. And um, by the time I was in year 10, I just, uh, I guess for American listeners, like year 10 is like the beginning of senior high. So, right. So anyway, I'm going on this extended tangent because, um, because I look at kids, like the CVs of like young um, journalists who are trying to become interns at NPR and other like ambitious kids who just like uh, solicit me and send me their CVs. And I think I would never have survived in 2020 starting out in journalism. <laughs> uh, honestly, when I was in year 10, finally, I just told my mother, look, I, I just, I want to join the army and travel the world. Um, you know, I'm not good at school. I'll never be good at school. And you know, I, ju- I just want to see the world. And my mother, bless her, said, well, just give it another two years. And, you know, and she did, she took me to the army recruiting center and they were like, well, if you give it another two years, we can get you in a better position. Like, you know, I took it very seriously and I applied myself for another two years at school thinking, well, I'll just join the army. But it turns out I did all right my last two years of school and I got into university and I studied um, Asian studies. I was studying Russian and Arabic and just stuff around that. I just, I wanted to learn languages and, and, and get the fuck out of Australia. Um, <laughs> honestly, I just, I just found Australia so dull at the time. Um, and so I was studying Arabic. So I thought, well, you know, like I already speak a bit of Arabic and, and this will get me into like 
the Middle East somehow. I have no idea what I was going to do there. And and I was studying Russian because I was just like in love with the idea of Slavonic languages and, and you know, these, these cold countries and like dense literature. And, you know, I... I, I spent five years at university and I did really well at Arabic. My Russian course was cut. Um, but I also didn't really do well in much else because I'm just not very academically gifted. But I like reading books and that saved me. Um, I also got a when I was in when I was in university, I still didn't know what I wanted to study, and it was this like source of like constant anxiety. And I decided not to be an artist because artists were poor, and I was from like a family that didn't have much money. And so I need to I need to learn something that'll make me money. And then I went to Lebanon, I think it was in like 1990, to, as a part of my course, as a part of my Arabic course. And I spent a year there and I studied as hard as I could and I came back. And I don't know what got into me. I just, um, there was this like Asian studies magazine and like I sent the guy an email and it's like, look, I just came back from Lebanon. I've got these really cool stories for you. And I just like wrote down a series of stories about like stuff that I'd seen in Lebanon. And this, and this editor was just like, why don't you just guest edit our next? edition and we'll make a Middle East edition and I did and that led me to get a scholarship to do a master's in journalism uh, at a university called the University of Technology Sydney and um, I actually began that simultaneously with my university degree and um, and it was great like this really kind person and I I'm always grateful to her she was at this sort of like this student counseling center and she got me the scholarship and I think she understood that journalism wasn't that diverse then I mean way less than now and maybe I'd be good at it and so you know she arranged a scholarship for me and I, I got in but at the same time that that happened I sort of went through like this enormous like mental health crisis of my own um, I used to I'm from quite a conservative Muslim family and I myself used to wear the hijab and after I came back from Lebanon I just didn't have it in my heart anymore that I really believed things the way I used to. And it wasn't like some sudden loss of faith. It was like a little crack in a window and it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so there came a point where I, I took off my hijab, which uh, upset my father greatly, even though he'd never asked me to put it on. And um, that led to sort of like this breakdown in, in my family and I left home and so I was studying for journalism. I was living in Sydney. Ironically enough, with my father's help, he'd rented me. He had he found a flat for me to rent. Um, I was paying for it, but he found it. But I just couldn't cope. I, I couldn't cope with um, the depression that I felt because I felt like my family didn't understand me and they were really all I knew. I was a pretty sheltered kid. Um, I, I couldn't cope with studying and juggling one or two jobs I was I had a gold necklace and I would pawn it every week um, to to pay for food and then I would like work enough to buy it back and and I was so sad and I didn't really know many people and I I just I just sort of fell apart and um, and at the same time I ended up being accepted for this volunteer position at this um, uh, Palestinian um, NGO in Haifa in Israel. Uh, it was an NGO run by Palestinian citizens of Israel. And I just thought, like, I'm just going to go. I didn't finish my master's degree in journalism. After a lot of sort of back and forth with my father, um, he agreed to 
pay for my ticket to leave the country and I promised him that I'd be back in six months and I never came back. I've never lived in Australia since for any meaningful period of time. That was in 2001. And, um, and it still took me a few years after that to become a journalist. I spent about two years as an activist and realized that wasn't for me. And then I spent a few years in Dubai just killing myself trying to get into the industry. And then finally, finally, I, I got a job in a local newspaper and that was great. And I started meeting other journalists. And then the AP offered me a job in Jerusalem in uh, 2006. And that was when everything turned around for me and about, I think I must have been like 26 or 27 then, like I was a really late starter. I just, I wouldn't have made it today. I, my, my CV wasn't shiny. Um, I had only one degree to my name. I, you know, and I, I was a pretty awkward person. What is the process like from the time, I mean, that mental health sort of crisis, as you say, transitioning from a change in faith like that, a disconnect from your family to to setting out and starting your own career. I mean, that's a that's a dramatic shift in one's life. What what is that process like and how does one heal from that? Like, I don't know. I mean, as I said, I was really sheltered. And so I didn't know that there was such thing as like therapy or people who'd been through a similar process. And it took me a really long time. Uh, maybe, gosh, it must have been as late as like 2010 um, for me to understand that I wasn't alone, that this had happened to other people. And so it throughout my 20s, I, I, I suffered from these bouts of depression um, but at the same time once I left Australia my life changed because somehow I wasn't shackled to the idea of who I was I could be a new person and I think that process of reinvention is really important for some kids and and it certainly was for me because I had broken so many things that had held me together uh, through my life like my relationship with my family was extremely fraught and it wasn't a source of comfort. Um, I, I couldn't find it in myself to believe in the religion that I had been raised in. And then suddenly I was in this new world where there were people like me, they spoke English, they spoke Arabic, they were Arabs, they, they, they were Muslims, they were from the United States, they were from Europe and they were from the Middle East. And you know, and they had these lives where they, you know, would drink alcohol and have boyfriends and girlfriends and, and work. And I just threw myself into that. And so, yes, I would like often veer into these like really deep depressions. But a lot of the time, my life became exciting. It was like this frenetic activity. I felt like I was catching up for all the years that I'd stayed at home thinking about what the outside world was like. And suddenly I was in it. The day that I left Australia, I remember I was crying in the airport. Mum and dad drove me there. As I said, it was a fraught relationship. Um, and my father said goodbye to me and he was in tears. You know, we, we, we were not a rich family. And he'd borrowed money to pay for my ticket for me to leave Australia and for me to leave the family. And, and, and he said to me, look, this money doesn't matter. If you change your mind, just come home. Mm. And I remember crying so hard and he was crying because I, I understood the love that backed up that statement. And I also understood how desperately I needed to be free. And 
I remember walking away and going through the immigration. And at that point, the doors close and you can't see the people saying goodbye to you anymore. You disappear to them and they disappear to you. It's really symbolic. Um, and I remember just feeling like I was floating. I wasn't even walking on the ground. I felt so free. I felt like everything was about to begin in my life. Yeah. Um, yeah, and maybe that's why it took me a few years from there to start into journalism because there were so many other things that I had to process, including just meeting myself, figuring out who I was, and also just, I think, getting activism out of my system. I was had so many issues that I felt so passionately about, and I just I wanted to, like, really push to the limits of what I could do with them, but it took me about two years to realise, like, I'm not good at activism. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that your background, your unique experience affects the way you do reporting, the stories you tell, the, either the things you're attracted to or the way you approach them? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, and I think it, it's the same for, for anyone who does journalism is that, you know, what what we cover in some way refracts who we are. Um, I'm really interested in covering religion and uh, I'm quite empathetic to conservative Muslims, to conservative people. And I like telling their stories. I like telling stories of how Islam is changing. And it was one of the reasons why I was happy to make that leap from the Middle East to Pakistan, because I really wanted to see how Islam was practiced here and how people use it in their day-to-day -day lives. I'm interested in women and freedom. I, my running joke is I do a story about girls riding bikes every two years because, <laughs> you know, uh, there's nothing, there is nothing more liberating than the feeling of being a woman on a bike. Um, I, I cover stories often about minorities who were rejected uh, by mainstream society. I, I ended up doing a what felt for me like um, a lot of work on like gay, lesbian, transgender Arabs through the Middle East. I always feel like I've touched on those stories perhaps more than other people, um, well, other people at least at the AP when I was working there. But beyond that, I think, and this developed later, or, or at least the consciousness of it, the thing that I try to do most of my reporting is sketch out a three-dimensional view of the person I'm speaking to because it's really easy to be reductive. It's really easy to see people as victims of their circumstances. And and yet there's so much humor and warmth and, and strength that can often undergird people in like really terrible situations. And I've always wanted to bring that out. And also people's complexities. It was especially, especially in Israel-Palestine, it was like one of the things that I, I tried to do the most was just let Palestinians be characters, like let them be people, not not just talking bots of political statements or two-dimensional, you know, fighting occupation and this is the only way that we exist and care about them, but to be people. I, I don't think that necessarily worked, uh, but I, I, it was really something that I, I tried to do then and I, I try to do it now with, with just about every story. Is like how can I make the people in this story more people-like, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. What's, uh, can you think of something that in your experience now, just being in the field for as long as you've been, that you never could have learned in school, that you wish you could have learned, but there's just no way to learn until you're actually doing the work? That, that's a hard question for someone like me, because uh, as I said, I wasn't really good at school. I wasn't academically um, in any way a, a, a good performer. And so I, I don't know if school really 
taught me much. Mm-hmm. Um, the most useful skill, uh, and I don't mean this in any way like sarcastically, I think the most useful skill I got out of my years of education was typing. I'm a really good typer. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- I would certainly say it helped that even though I didn't finish my master's degree in journalism, I did get the ethics course done and that is that has been extremely useful and I'm glad the opposite of your question I'm glad that I studied that before I went out in the field but more than that I wish I'd just follow my own advice which is to just shut up and listen Mm. you know no reporter is yeah right like no reporter is a voice for the voiceless I fucking can't stand people who say that your job is to shut up and listen (laughs) absolutely yeah and I just I just wish that maybe that's definitely something that I learned in years of talking over people. <laughs> I think I'm so excited to try to bring something out that often we accidentally engineer, you know, conversation instead of just letting letting come out what's what's going to come out. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would certainly say that, like, as I become older, I'm more patient in just letting people talk and and getting to the, to, to the point of where they want to go. Not with officials, but w- when I'm interviewing, like, actual people. Yeah. And you and your team won an award, I believe it was last year, the, uh, is it the Murrow Award? Is that the correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about that story. It was um, about w- another story about oh. women in Pakistan. But uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about that and what that was like. Right. So we worked on a story um, based on a report that was actually, I think at that point, a year or two old um, that said that Pakistan had one of the highest rates of abortion in the world. And the, that really leapt out to me. And so we began trying to figure out how to do that story. Like, could we find women who were considering having an abortion, who'd had abortions and who would talk to us? And I should say that that wasn't an original idea I had. A good friend of mine here had talked to me about this very story and had suggested that I try to do it. Uh, she's a good friend of mine and we often exchange stories and we often help each other on our stories. It's really collaborative. And so she had told me she was working on this story and I saw the report and I think at that point I might have got in touch with her or her husband and just said, look, what do you think? And they were quite enthusiastic that I try to go ahead with it. Um, and then from there, you know, we interviewed a lot of specialists, but finding a woman who would acknowledge that she'd had abortions was was so difficult. And in the end, it was a woman who um, works as a cleaner at NPR introduced us to somebody uh, who we call Mehnaz in the story who had had a series of abortions and who agreed to speak to us. And there was... Uh, and I say this because it's really important to understand how collaborative these stories are. They're never just one person and one byline. Even on the radio, it's always Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. But every story has so many hands, like, lifting it up, and that story in particular. So um, the cleaner at NPR introduced us to this woman, Mahnaz, and we ended up interviewing her, and we found out, um, and, and we... And we heard a pretty tragic story. And, and it was a story that said something broader about the state of Pakistani women, especially poorer women, especially rural women, which was that she was married young. She 
had a series of daughters. She was under pressure from her husband and her mother-in-law to have a son. And so she tried to figure out through uh, ultrasounds whether she was having a girl or a boy. And when she couldn't do that, she began trying to have abortions in a panic because she thought she was having girls and she was really worried that her husband would marry another woman if she couldn't produce a son. And so the way that she was trying to save her marriage and also not just her marriage, but her social standing and her ability to live. You know, she, 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 like most Pakistani women, she doesn't work, she's not literate, and she relies on a husband um, to eat. And, and to preserve that, she began having these self-administered abortions. And she had one abortion through pushing around heavy furniture slamming herself against that furniture and by drinking this concoction of boiled dates that Pakistani women believe produces an abortion. She had another abortion, uh, I believe, that she convinced a midwife to procure for her uh, using pills. And then I believe she had a third abortion. This, uh, this woman, Mahnaz, did not have enough status in her relationship to ask her husband to use a condom. He would have, she said he would refuse and he would refuse to let her use contraceptive pills on the basis that that was against the religion. Uh, it's probably also her mother-in-law, which had a big role in this because mother-in-laws have an extraordinary large role in Pakistan in preserving these structures. She could not refuse having sex with her husband. And, and one of the things that that story, I still think about it, still makes me angry, is when we say that women don't have control over their bodies. What does that mean? It means that you as a woman have to lie down and open your legs and forcibly allow someone to shove their penis into you and ejaculate into you and get you pregnant. And you have no say over whether that happens or not. And the only power you have is to procure an abortion if you don't want to have that child, which is what women in Pakistan do. So we ended up interviewing Mahnaz and then we needed to find abortion providers to speak to. And again, that was honestly sheer luck. I mean, it was tenacity because I work with such a good team. And we went to Karachi because I knew that we could speak to a clinic there that helps uh, low-income women have abortions. It's a legal clinic and they had very kindly allowed me to um, interview women there and interview uh, their staff as long as I didn't say uh, who they were. And while we were out on the story, typically we park in one particular hotel in Karachi uh, for security reasons, and we use a driver that the hotel supplies to us. I, I wish we didn't have to, but um, I have to work uh, according to specific security protocols. So we're with this driver, and we're actually explaining to him the story because drivers are so fucking well-connected everywhere in the world, right? Um, and he was like, oh, abortion, you should meet my sister. <laughs> And so he introduces us to his sister who uh, teaches the Quran to students, also organizes religious pilgrimages to Mecca and Medina for Muslims, and also runs uh, a back alley uh, abortion clinic. Wow. And yeah, I, I have a picture. Like, I mean, I was pregnant at the time of doing this story. And, like, I was sort of like waddling around everywhere. And it was really weird because, like, I'm pretty shameless. And so. She was trying to explain to me how she gave abortions. I just kept like referring to my own belly and saying, and so like you would do this and this and this. And I'd sort of like, you know, like I'd, I'd visually like sort of like carved out like uh, this fetus from my own body. Um, 
I think other people thought it was traumatic, but that wasn't the traumatic part of the story for me. It was like finally understanding like the absolute lack of control most Pakistani women have over their own bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and so she did. She talked us through how she provided abortions, and a lot of it's through like these abortion, like uh, abortion pills. I can't remember what they're called, but you take a combination of them. They're widely available in the West, and you um, and, and they cause you to spontaneously um, uh, abort a fetus. And it was crazy because you know we talk about backroom alley clinics, and hers was like a pretty like sweaty, grubby room with a little like hospital cot that was covered in clothes because uh, she had to dry them. Um, the, uh, there was a little table that had the pills on it, but also had a stack of Qurans because she's also a Quran teacher. And it also had a bag of onions on it because she'd just done her shopping. And, um, and that was where these women had their abortions. And then, you know, and we were talking about it and she goes, oh, but, you know, I'm one of the good ones. Like, and this was really important for her to explain. And I found out it's like this theme among abortion providers in Pakistan where they explain they only give abortions to women who need them because they're bleeding. What does that mean? It means most probably that Pakistani women to obtain abortions have to also cause themselves to bleed. Like they have to inflict further harm on themselves to prove to these midwives that they are in desperate need of an abortion and that they will uh, be harmed if they don't have one. And why do midwives need to see this? Because although Islam allows abortion, like um, up to a certain number of weeks, culturally in Pakistan, the belief is that um, abortions are forbidden in Islam and they'll only do them for very strict health reasons. It was remarkable because this is a country where abortion is actually legal to a certain degree. Uh, doctors are meant to provide them. The religion, which over 90% of the people here follow, allows for it. But culturally, it's seen as so irredeemable that women who are pregnant, often through no fault of their own and no control of their own, have to harm themselves to get these abortions. And so how did these like researchers even come to the figure that Pakistan was one of the countries that had the highest number of abortions in the world? They looked at the number of women in hospitals who had to go there after they'd had botched abortions for further uh, follow-up care. So I had to just basically hold my tears and my anger in check as I wrote that story. And we did a radio version, and, and that's what won. And I was so happy that story won because it's really easy um, to get pigeonholed, and I often worry about this, as doing women's stories, as if women aren't the fucking majority, right, of the planet. <laughs> Um, honestly, do I sound angry? I should sound angry because this is what it like. This is what you should sound like as a woman once you understand, right? Um, yeah, I would, you know, I'm so worried about that pigeonholing. Oh, you know, they're soft stories. It's not, it's not Pakistan and the militants and Pakistan and nukes and Pakistan and the Taliban. It's a story about a woman who had to have a lot of abortions. I was so glad it resonated. And I know it partially resonated because it like dug into culture wars in the United States. But it was also just, it also just felt good that people could read a story about a part of the world they don't know about, people whose names I can't pronounce, people who look a bit scary and brown and militanty, and 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 see something in that story that resonated with them. Like that was really important. So I found out that I won the award while I was on my maternity leave. <laughs> I was just, you know, but it also made me so grateful because I am a woman who is in control of her own reproduction. And so I have a child who is adored because I got to have her in the time and place of my choosing. 
you know, and and this isn't to say that, you know, I'm secretly like some advocate for like free-for-all abortions. I mean, I feel pretty, I'm pretty conservative as a person about what I think about the subject, but for a woman to have a right over her own body, it just, it really hit home doing that story. I've talked a lot. <laughs> That's fascinating and I'm, gl- I'm glad you have. That story was fascinating to me, especially in reading that it's so contrary to other countries where the majority of women having abortions are married women who already have children. And yeah. the woman that you wrote about particularly uh, or reported about particularly, that makes sense having had all those daughters and her anxiety over not being able to produce a son. And I, I don't know if the statistic is that it's mostly married women because there's not a lot of sex happening before marriage culturally, or if it's because of the anxiety about, you know, producing a son. And like you were saying that every time you get a step further in the story, it asks another question. And I, and I feel like that's, that's what demonstrates a good story is that there's always another layer as you, you keep learning more about, you never could have asked those questions initially about values or culture in Pakistan. You had to go through that to ask the next question. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Yes. That, 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 that's right. But the, and the other thing about that statistic, and it was really important, I think, for, for advocates of, of, of contraception, not even of abortion, but of contraception in Pakistan, is that there's this stereotype that it's single rich girls who, um, you know, can't, you know, control themselves, who are getting pregnant, they're sort of lazily getting pregnant and then are demanding, you know, abortions. Whereas, you know, we don't know, those women don't appear in the statistics and they probably don't appear in the statistics because if you're an upscale woman in Pakistan and, and you've become pregnant and you want to, um, have an abortion, you can leave Pakistan outside of a pandemic, obviously, and have an abortion somewhere else and come back. Um, or you can pay to have a safe abortion. You know? uh, and so the largest group of women who are having abortions and who are getting sick or who need follow-up care after their abortions are poor, um, low-educated or rural women who already have children. And and I, yeah, and it's so important to keep banging away at that that particular thing because the idea that abortion is this province of, of of loose morality is not only enraging; it's killing women. Well said. I'm sure there are all sorts of influences on why you choose the stories you do, and what stories choose you, and what directives you get. But is there something that's sort of looming on the horizon that you really want to dig into and haven't yet? Um, yeah, I mean, there's always a few things. Like, I I think um, finishing stories, like, you know, when you look at your output, there's always, like, there's always double the amount of stories that you wanted to do and couldn't do. Um, I, I really want to look at child sex abuse in Pakistan in more detail, but I just haven't managed to carve out the ridiculous number of hours that that entails. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is such an issue here. We uh, we covered a case um, two years ago of like um, a series of rapes and murders of children in, in one town in the southern Punjab, a town called Kasua. And what was striking about it was that so many children were murdered, like were raped and murdered. Other children escaped being killed, but the police did nothing. They, they, they did this half-hearted investigation. They... 
They, they didn't register some of the cases because the families were poor and they had no influence with the police and the police didn't want the headache. And what happens in a lot of these um, child sexual assault cases is that the perpetrator is not only is often known to the family, is often uh, in a powerful, like in a position of power, obviously, but the perpetrator often also threatens the family by releasing tapes of the act um, of assault, which in especially in more conservative settings would bring a lot of shame upon the family of the victim and mm-hmm. could potentially affect that the victim's ability to uh, marry um, or their, their siblings or their relatives' ability to, to marry and create social networks. And the reason why I'm interested in this story is because considering that particular facet of threat, um, I'm trying to think of the right words, like the right way of saying this, considering the way that families of victims are threatened and silenced by having the act of assault taped, for me, it seems to be a logical leap from there that they must be selling this online. Hmm. But I can't prove that. And so that's really one of the stories I want to dig into here. And why should anyone care outside of obviously the tragedy of this terrible thing happening to children? Because, again, this is my guess, but that much of the child, the, the material involving child sexual assault that exists online must be coming from countries where the laws are hazy, where they're not implemented very well and where families are afraid to come forward. This would seem to be the right kind of environment, if you could say that, for these assaults to happen and to be sold. And would you go so far as to say that you think there's an industry being built around that or do you think it's simply that they're being shared and potentially sold? It's really hard to say because I just don't know. Like I'm telling you what I think might be the case, but Mm -hmm. because I haven't been able to start this story, I just don't know. And why was it happening to your understanding or your instinct in that one particular town so prolifically? It's really unclear. It's really unclear. And and this town, it's, it happened before where it was an entire, it seems that it was like a ring of pedophiles and they abused dozens of children. And it only came to the media's attention after some of those families started protesting, saying the police weren't taking their complaints seriously. It's unclear. And it doesn't mean to say that it doesn't exist in other parts of Pakistan because it does. But I can't answer the question of why this one town and this area around the town has become so synonymous with child sexual assault. I would hazard a guess that there must be some even small industry that exists out of there that needs to, that needs to be fed by children. But I don't know. Well, that's fascinating. And grim. And grim, yeah, indeed. But if this is happening in the world, it's something that should be explored. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's sort of your job is to shine lights on these things. I mean, you, you hope that it leads to change. If not in Pakistan, at least, then there's like like stricter rules. Like, for instance, on 
small amounts of money being transferred online, you know, um, to, to, to the same, like, accounts and things like that, in the same way that in Australia one of the big banking scandals was that they, they could see from the nature of financial transactions that were happening from the Philippines to Australia that it probably involved child sexual assault uh, being filmed mm. online, but the bank didn't do anything about it until they were called out, I think, by a regulator. Uh, so, like, I mean, obviously, like, the, the, the hope in that sort of story is that by killing off the, the, the source of the money, like, by, by stopping people from being able to pay for it, that it somehow protects the kids more. But I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. Fascinating. And how long, for something like that, how, what would you say a typical story that's highly complex, highly sensitive like that, how long do you, does it typically take to sort of bring something to fruition to report or is it so different it's, for every single story? It's so different for every single story. Like that story that I'm telling you could take up to a year um, in, in research and reporting between other stories. But typically on a big story, like let's say like you've pitched a five to seven minute story and the editors have accepted it, you might spend up to a month. The abortion story mm-hmm. took months um, and we did other stories around it just to just to keep stuff like coming out of the Islamabad Bureau. Um, so yeah, it just entirely depends on the nature of the story. What was one of the hardest stories you've worked on? Whether hard because it was just hard to get the, the leads and the resources or personally hard because it was just hard to report? Okay. Ah, I'm trying to think of like a really hard, like, I mean, so many stories were just like super hard. I think, I mean, a story that always resonates with me um, was uh when I was working at the New York Times, um, we we did a story out of Hebron about um, Israel. Israeli authorities had finally released the youngest um, Palestinian to ever been held um, in Israeli detention, if I'm not mistaken. And um, I'm trying to remember the details of the story. I believe her name was Dina Lwawi, and she was 12, maybe 13 when it happened. And it was a really hard story to report because, you know, on one hand, it's this really tragic story, like the Israeli um, military, as a part of its occupation of the West Bank, has incarcerated a very, like, uh, has incarcerated a young girl. On the other hand, then you have to explain, and I had to explain what that young girl did to become incarcerated, and I believe uh, that she had maybe carried a knife or some sort of weapon and tried to enter a nearby Israeli settlement. And I believe her intention was to cause physical harm to, to uh, Jewish settlers. I, I, I hesitate to say the word murder because I'm not sure that a 12-year-old understands or a 13-year-old understands, you know, murder. And uh, it was just a really hard story because it's like, my God, how does this story work? How can I be fair to every facet of this story? She... She sought to harm people. She was also arrested and interrogated at a level far beyond what would be sensitive or kind for a girl her age. She began having her first period while she was being interrogated and she didn't understand what was happening to her. And when she was released, the first thing she wanted to do was have an ice cream. And, yeah, and it was also the case that that her mother, who was extremely friendly, um, perhaps had been occupied with some sort of, she, I, I don't want to say and be unfair to her, she, she seemed preoccupied and 
had also been clearly in denial about her daughter's mental health issues. Uh, a school counsellor had even asked the parents to, to take this girl uh, to a psychiatrist uh, or, or at least to a psychologist and uh, try work through some of the issues she was having and, and the parents refused on the basis that having mental health issues is shameful. And so it was a really hard story to write because what you give weight to could potentially look like bias. Um, I remember one colleague, you know, wrote to me saying that he was really concerned about the story because I was somehow making, you know, this criminal look like um, an innocent girl. Uh, and, you know, and I had to respond saying, well, look, she is, you know, both someone who intended to do something that was quite harmful, but she is also, on the other hand, a girl. Uh, it was a really hard story to write. And the, 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 that detail that she um, begun having her first period while she was in interrogation, her, the mother told me that we, I, I had actually called her back to check that I was okay to say it in the story because you want to be sure in a detail like that in a society that conservative that they're comfortable. And then the family decided they weren't comfortable and then we actually had to like go visit them again and explain the power of, of having that detail in the story. And ultimately, like they gave out not just their permission but their blessing um, to have the detail in the story. I say this because it wasn't the hardest story to prove. It wasn't the hardest story to investigate. It wasn't like the most life-threatening. But like I've certainly had other stories where we, we colleagues like risked our lives to do them. But I remember that story just being the most, perhaps the most ethically difficult to write. And, and I still think about it today. It's an incredibly complex story too, uh, based on the number of, so many details about what that young girl is going to, but also the legal system, the political context that brought this situation about to begin with, the mental health. I mean, this is that's an incredibly rich, complex story. Yeah, and I, I don't know if I did it justice. I'm just like, you know, and even now I think, oh God, you know, dear, I hope, you know, I hope you didn't mess up any of the details. <laughs> I'm gonna just quickly look it up online just to just to make sure that I didn't mess up any of that. Sure. Um. She was uh, 12, Dima Wawi, she was uh, 12 years old and she was held for two months for her crime. Uh, she was arrested in February with a knife at the entrance of an Israeli settlement. Okay. Yeah. So that was the story from 2016. How did you convince them, uh, her family, to give their blessing about the detail about mental health what how did how was that explained not not the mental health detail about the period um oh the period yes that's right um so initially they said no we can't have this detail it's like shameful we don't want people to know she was menstruating uh i, I spent a long time just sort of saying like it's really important for people to understand how young she was. She was so young, this happened to her in interrogation and she didn't know what was happening. Um, mm. But I really wasn't getting through. And then, um, you know, I, I told you that even though I speak Arabic, I always have someone who works with me and I always call them like my cultural interpreter. And um, mm -hmm. and uh, Rami, uh, this, uh, his, he was a New York Times stringer at, uh, I was working with and he was with me and he just, you know, sort of squared with the family and said, look, you know, we've done so much work on this story and and this story is, 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 is an important story for people to know. And, 
you have, and it just became really hectoring in a way that I would never, I was just like, you know, you should know that this is the detail that will make this. And it, and it just, and, and he just gave this like really like emotional speech, like with this like really raised voice about why this detail had to be in the story. And I remember they were just all staring and I was just like, oh my God, Rami, we've fucked this up. Like, you know, you're like, you're shouting. We haven't gotten across to them. Like we might as well just like pack this up. It was such a stressful story. And then the uncle, I think it was the uncle. He just, he turned to Rami and goes, by God, you're right. Of course you have our blessing for this detail. And it was just like, what? <laughs> really? My goodness. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> And later that story proved to be extremely controversial among Palestinians. And as far as I understand, there was a Palestinian photographer who tried to get me banned from entering Gaza um, on the basis of this story. Um, it, yeah, he really, he just, he just, apparently he'd um, really incited against me online. But from that point on, I was at least like, I was morally okay with the story that we'd written because we had the family's consent to say the story that we knew had happened. Mm-hmm. This might be a, a naive question, so pardon me if it is. And it also might be very regional, which wouldn't surprise me, but or specific. Mm. But how do you experience the the perspective or the level of trust that those who live in the Middle East have for sort of Western journalism, and and how do they see that that role? And what, yeah, what is the impression of it? Um, it really varies from country to country. Um, in, I found that Palestinians uh, were surprisingly patient and kind um, about Western journalists in, intruding into their lives. It was nearly almost like woven into like the culture of um, of military occupation that that Western journalists would be there asking questions, and it almost became a signifier of having a de- like of having importance. Um, the for other countries, it's quite difficult. Obviously, uh, Syria, when I covered Syria, um, in government areas, there was very little that you could glean from people because they were so terrified of the regime and they were terrified of what we would say. Um, in, in, in Lebanon, which is a fairly free society in terms of uh, speech, um, people were just like fast and loose and it was like pretty incredible. In Egypt, I found it really hard. Like I'm half Egyptian. Um, I, I speak a dialect, an Egyptian, I, I can speak an Egyptian dialect of Arabic, although with a thick accent. Um, I found it really hard to report there without another report, like without an Egyptian, Egyptian reporter beside me. Um, mm. I, I found it difficult to like crack into people's hearts to understand what was happening to them and to really get a sense of, of what was going on. I always had to work with another reporter. Uh, so it really it really varied from place to place. But I, I will say that it was remarkable for me how patient Palestinians were with foreign correspondents, especially because traditionally, like this is like before the Arab Spring and, and, and before this like new crazy world that we live in, um, you know, the Israel-Palestine conflict was always like this like central conflict and central narrative of foreign news obviously this is like totally changed now um and it was where like a lot of like young ambitious freelancers would go to, to you know to get their like to get their first digs and you know and I, I constantly think like how does it feel like to kind of be used you know um you know there's there's a lot of really well-meaning like Western you know reporters and like I think they did like the the best job that they could in like Israel Palestine but 
it was hard to escape that for a lot of other journalists, it, this was just a place that you were before you moved on to somewhere else. And then the Middle East was a place that you were before you moved back to America to cover the real story. And it's just like, if that's why you're here, I wish that you wouldn't be here. Like, these places are worthy and valid and you should be excited and engaged and interested in them and not just be thinking of how this is going to look on your CV so that you can take some plummy job in the States. Hmm. And, I, I, and I know that like some, I think like some like urban educated Palestinians had expressed the same frustration and, you know, like me, I can't be like I was there as, as a reporter and um, I spent years there, but it was really hard to cope with the idea that everything that a journalist was seeing and hearing was just to help propel them to another place because it just felt so like, well, who are these people to you? You know, like, like who are Israelis and Palestinians and Lebanese and Egyptians? Uh, you know, they, they don't exist like in your head and in your heart if they're not like making you like wrestle with what you know, like what the fuck are you doing here? So I guess that was like my bed bug about like people would be like, well, you know, I'm going back to the States. I've been here long enough. And be like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> go home. <laughs> but, you know, there you go. I left too. I left as well. Do you think that you'll be in uh, Pakistan much longer? What is your What is your plan for the future? How does that look? I really hope to be here for a few more years. And that really just depends on, on A, NPR renewing my contracts I'm not staff I'm on contracts and um and it depends on Pakistani authorities uh renewing my my work visa I can't ship a family I can't schlep a family to Kabul it's not safe mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I, I need to be here and um and I and I hope after this that I might see more of the world. Um, you know, I just had this whole tirade <laughs> about people who you know view the Middle East as like the next step in their career but Honestly, like I'm in my early 40s now, I feel so impatient to see other parts of the world as a reporter. Like I, I would love to spend some time in sub-Saharan Africa. I would like to spend some time in South America. I don't know how much time I have left and, and what NPR has patience for and what my family has patience for. So there's just so much more to do and see, you know. I mean, you've been there for a long time. I mean, you've been since what, uh, at least a decade in the Middle East, yeah. Yeah, the Middle East was my longest um, was was my longest work experience. It's like from twenty sixteen to sorry two thousand and six as a reporter. Um, no, because then before sorry because before that I was in the Gulf working as a reporter. So from two thousand and three to twenty seventeen. Yeah. So yeah, it was a long time. Um, but it would, yeah, just be wonderful to see more of the world. And what is your husband? Is is he a baker? Yeah. <laughs> yes, he is. Okay. I was doing some free, um, you know, j just exploring on Instagram. <laughs> I saw a lot of bread baking. Yeah, yeah. He used to be in the Australian military, but um, he left the military when um, – where we got married and, you know, so he, he came here and started like this second career as a baker. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, he is. Um, he's, he's, he's a really good person and he's a wonderful, uh, he's a wonderful cook in general. We're, we're very different people um, in a way that I would say genuinely works. Touch wood. Until now it's worked. <laughs> yeah. 
I was going to, one thing I wanted to circle back, I want to be respectful of your time. I, I know you're a very busy w- woman, but one, one quick question I had, when you were talking about your upbringing and your parents and kind of how unique their match was because of two distinct variables, marrying outside of their country and outside of their, um, their class, was that a, how did they connect? How did that happen? That seems so rare. It, it was really, it was really uh, rare. My father, um, my father left Lebanon because he couldn't afford to study at university there. Um, most mm-hmm. universities in Lebanon uh, were at the time private and they just didn't have the money. Um, so he went to Egypt because Egypt at the time was ruled by uh, very, like a, a populist, very iconic leader, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser. And uh, Nasser was offering free education to all Arabs. And so my father... Uh, traveled to to Egypt, to Alexandria, to study accounting of all things. And he lived off uh, money that was sent by his brother. Uh, my His brother, my uh, oldest uncle, Ami Zayfuddin, used to be in the Lebanese military. And um, my father also ended up meeting some Sufis. Uh, Sufism is quite big in Alexandria. And um, he ended up um, as a part of this circle um, that met in these bourgeois Alexandrian homes. And one of the teachers, uh, one of the people who was leading this circle and, and teaching about Sufism was my grandfather. And so uh, my, my grandfather, although he was an extremely rich and uh, successful businessman, also had this deeply spiritual side. And um, he um, was my father's teacher for probably a decade. Uh, while he was in Alexandria. It took my father a long time to graduate because there was never, I think it was because of like the shortage of money. Um, And so uh, as far as I understand, my grandfather really loved my father and he did not really mind so much of my father's really poor circumstances. It's also the case that um, my mother um, was quite a problem child. If um, she had existed in a different time and a place, she probably would have been diagnosed as autistic and dyslexic. So she didn't do very well at school. Um, She spent most of her time running around with friends. She hopped on a plane to Brazil once uh, because she was bored. Um, She was was wild. And um, I think my maternal grandfather was probably quite happy to see her married off because then she would lead a more stable life. Um, hmm. Yeah, she didn't. She didn't finish high school. Um, my mom's not good at reading or writing in any in any language. And um, I mean, she's an extremely kind and uh, empathetic woman. She has a very high, I'd say, emotional intelligence. But she didn't do very well at school, and she really struggled. And uh, yeah, she was kind of wild. So he was probably happy to see her, like, see her married off. Yeah, I wonder if that's partly why the fact that she didn't read and write that that's partly why your father pushed um you being so literary as a child um i I, i'm not sure i i think my father just didn't know what to do with four kids um you know we didn't have a lot of money and the fact that i had this really cheap (laughs) hobby must have been good for him yeah inexpensive way to occupy your time it's just so funny to think you said that you before you were reading magical realism before you even knew that it wasn't real i i love the idea that your um intelligence came before your intellect 
that's, that's a really kind thing to say. Thank you. Dia, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with me. It's, I really love hearing more about those stories. I've read both of the stories that we discussed, but it's it's really different to hear your experience investigating it as well. It's It, it brings so much um, to it as well. So thank you for, for going through that and just for taking the time to, to speak with me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mary. Thank you so much um, for even thinking of me in this podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's my pleasure.